Church, what do Christians believe about spiritual beings? We know that we're not naturalists. So, so what, what is a naturalist? A naturalist is someone who denies the supernatural entirely. Right? We live in a society that is committed to naturalism. There, there's no such thing as supernatural. Every, everything is just what we can see and feel and touch and felt and observed. Our universe is material and there is nothing else. That's all there is. There is no God. There are definitely not spiritual beings like angels and demons. So we're not that. We're not naturalists. Christians are not naturalists who, who believe that the material world is all there is. We're also not animists. Animists, uh, though th- th- we're used to a more naturalistic society, there are other societies in the world that have no problem with the supernatural. Many non-Western societies, uh, their whole lives uh, are ordered around the belief in the supernatural. They believe in a world that's filled with spiritual beings, some good, some evil, and all very powerful. However, in these cultures, though there are many spiritual beings, there is no capital G, God, over them. The spiritual realm is simply good spirits versus evil spirits in a cosmic battle that could go either way, and we're just kind of caught up in it. That's not what we believe. Christians are not animists. So what is the biblical worldview? What do we believe about the spiritual realm? Unlike naturalists, we believe that we do live in a world that is filled with invisible spiritual beings known as angels and demons. We believe that. That's that's the biblical worldview. There is a spiritual realm, a spiritual world filled with spiritual beings. Some are good, some are evil, all are very powerful. But unlike animists, we also believe there is one eternal God, the God who is spirit, who created and reigns over the spiritual realm. The spiritual world is as real as the physical world, and one creator God rules over it all. And the reason I'm saying this this morning is that this is not just an interesting doctrinal tidbit about Christianity. Like This is not just, just nice information to know. No, as we'll see in this morning's passage, this doctrine matters because there is a very real interaction between our physical world and the spiritual world. Specifically between human beings and the spiritual forces of evil. These are not separate worlds that have nothing to do with each other. This is the world. God created a world that is both visible and invisible. And there is a real interaction that we need to know about if we're going to live in God's world. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. is our passage this morning. Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. We're in a series through Matthew following the fulfillment. Matthew is all about showing us who Jesus is, the fulfillment of all the scriptures, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament scriptures, and, and then also the call that if, if this is who he is, we must follow him. We must become his disciples. And just want to remind us of the context before we look at this morning's passage we spent a lot of time in Matthew 5 through 7 and, and the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished that sermon, the crowds that were hearing him teach his disciples were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. He taught uh, not as their scribes who were always referencing other scribes. You know, he taught as, as if he had authority himself, as, as if it was, it was his to say what God has said. He, he taught with the authority of God. 
And the crowds were amazed by that and, and, and marveled at that. But it's one thing to teach with authority. It's another thing to actually have that authority. And that's what Matthew 8 has been all about. Matthew 8 is a demonstration of that authority he taught with. It's showing us that Jesus really does have that authority. He really possesses it in himself. And we've seen this in Matthew 8 through Jesus having authority over sickness and disease, casting out sickness with a word, healing everyone who came to him. We saw it last week as Jesus has authority over nature, authority over storms. He can just speak and rebuke the winds and the sea and a wave that is rising will just go back down. We'll just fall back down because Jesus has authority over these things. And this morning we're going to see that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. And Jesus has authority over the spiritual forces of evil that inhabit our world. Let's read our passage, Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is a story about the Son of God, demons, and pigs as you can see from the title. And as we get into this today, first what I want to do is just make three observations from the story itself. Three observations that, that will then lead us to make some conclusions about what Matthew is teaching. So first, I just want us to observe in this story where Jesus went. Where Jesus went. We see this in verse 28. Remember, a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was in Capernaum. Large crowds were forming because of his miracles, and he ordered the disciples to prepare a boat to leave. So where did they go? Where were they going? Here we see that they came to the country of the Gadarenes. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but what's important to know is that this is a Gentile territory. It's a Gentile territory, so that means non-Jewish. These people were not a part of the chosen people of Israel. These were pagans. These were idolaters. And, and this is where Jesus went, which is interesting, because in his public ministry, Jesus himself said in another place, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises made to the Jews, and his ministry was focused on the Jews. And yet, there are moments like this in the Gospels where Jesus widens the scope of his ministry to include Gentiles. And we see it here. What he's, do what he's doing is he's preparing the disciples to understand that he's not just the Savior of Israel. He came to be the Savior of the whole world. And here we have one of those moments in Matthew where Jesus widens the scope of his ministry, opens it up, to, to, to show the disciples and prepare them to understand that he's not just our Savior. Right? So, he's, so he goes to this Gentile territory, and then once he gets there, where does he go? Notice, he doesn't go to the town. He goes to the tombs. He goes to the tombs. And there at the tombs, at the place where they bury dead people, who's there? Two 
demon-possessed men. He goes to the spiritually dark world of the Gentiles. He goes to the place of the dead where the tombs are, and he goes to these two demon-possessed men. Now, to be demon-possessed is to have a demonic spirit, one of these spiritual beings that are evil, to take up residence in and control of your human body. It's very clear in this passage, these demons had control of these men. They used their lips, they used their limbs, they, they took control of them to make them do what their will in their own bodies. And scripture doesn't tell us how this happens, just that it happened. It happened frequently during the time of Jesus. And in this case, we know from the other gospel accounts that these two men were not just possessed by one demon, but by many demons. Matthew describes the demons as being so fierce, you see it in verse 28, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So if anyone from this town drew near to the tombs, these men would attack them. The demons through the men's bodies would attack them violently. And yet, here's Jesus going that way, entering their territory, approaching these two Gentile men who were possessed by violent demons and were beyond the help of the world. This is where Jesus went. This is, this is where he had his eyes set when he said to the disciples, prepare a boat. The Gentile world, the tombs, the demon-possessed who are beyond the help and hope of this world. So that's the first observation, where Jesus went. Second, let's just see why Jesus went there. Why, why did he do this? We see this in the bulk of the passage in 29 through 34. Look at verse 29 again. And behold, the demons, through the men, cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? It's amazing. These, these demons who would violently attack anybody who came their way, they don't violently attack Jesus. They come trembling before Jesus. They're absolutely terrified of Jesus. And why are they terrified of him? Because they know who he is. They know who he is. For the first time in his public ministry, someone confesses the true and full identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, Son of God. He is the Son of God. This man from Nazareth named Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, uncreated, eternal, almighty, all-knowing, all-present, the one by whom all things were created, visible and invisible. All things are sustained through him. He's worthy of all worship and honor and glory. He's the Son of God. The demons know this. And as James says, even the demons believe and shudder. They shudder. They're terrified of him. They're terrified of him because they know who he is and they hate who he is. They hate the Son of God. They rebelled against him with Satan. Remember, the demons are fallen angels. They, 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 they rebelled against their creator. They didn't want God over them and, and they were cast out of heaven. And now they want nothing to do with him. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Is that They're saying, why are you here? We don't want you here. We don't want you here, Jesus. And, and they know, look, they know that one day they're going to be judged by Jesus. They talk about the time that is coming. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that a day of judgment is coming. They know there's a time that is set in history for their torment. 
Listen, the fate of demons, the fate of Satan, the fate of the spiritual forces of evil is the eternal wrath of God. The destiny of demons is the lake of fire. And, the, the, you know, we get this caricature of hell that Satan is like the lord of hell and the, the demons are coming around poking at sinners in hell forever. No, no, that's not right. Satan is not the lord of hell. Demons are not his minions who will torture sinners there. God has appointed a day of judgment for the spiritual forces of evil. And these demons know this and they're terrified. And yet at the same time, they're not just terrified. Look, they're confused. Do you see that? The, the demons are confused. Like, it's not time yet, Jesus. Why are you here early? You ever been getting ready to host somebody at your house and, and you're still getting ready and they arrive half an hour early? Like rushing around. Like, they're not supposed to be here yet. That's what they're saying to Jesus. You're not supposed to be here yet, Jesus. We know this day is coming, but it's not, it's not yet. Why are you here? They're confused. And we see here that Though the demons know a lot, they, they just can't comprehend the redemptive work of God in history. They, they, don't, they don't get it. They, they, they can't wrap their minds around what God is doing. And they're confused that Jesus has arrived early. And they say, have you come here to torture us before the time? Have you come here to torment us? Have you come here to, to judge us before the time? Well, we don't hear Jesus answer that question, but we see the answer to that question. So there's a herd of pigs nearby. And we shouldn't just imagine a little pig pen here. Mark tells us that there were 2,000 pigs nearby. So, so two, picture 2,000 pigs. And that just tells us how many demons there were, right? There's 2,000 pigs. And the demons ask Jesus in verse 31, if you cast us out, and they've got a good guess that he will, if you cast us out, then send us away into the herd of pigs. And what do you see in verse 32? This is the only word of Jesus in this whole passage this morning. Go. One word, go. And with that word, Jesus commands this legion of violent demons to leave these two men, and they go into the herd of pigs, and the pigs immediately go into a craze, and they run down the bank toward the sea and drown themselves. Now, immediately we have questions about that, right? Like, why do they want to go into the pigs? Why do the pigs immediately drown themselves? Why did Jesus permit them to do this? And, and we'll get to the answer soon. But, but for now, just see this. Jesus did not come to judge the demons. Jesus came to save the demon-possessed men. He didn't come to judge the demons. He came to set these men free from the demons. That's what led him into this Gentile territory. That's what led him to the tombs. His purpose wasn't to come and judge the spiritual forces of evil. His purpose was to save Gentile sinners that these demons had come to possess. That was his mission in this moment. There's still one more part to the story that we need to observe, and that's how the people responded. How the people responded in verses 33 and 34. Let's look at that again. The herdsmen fled, and going back into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So these herdsmen, the ones that are watching the pigs, which probably belonged to many people in the town, they were the ones hired to watch them, they, they run back to the town and they, and they tell them everything. The town comes out to meet Jesus, and what do they do? They beg him to leave. And that's how the story ends. Jesus leaves. I mean, the next, the next passage we'll look at, Jesus gets up and goes. That's the end of his ministry here. What's going on with this? Why does the story end this way? What, 
What are we supposed to make of this? Well, I want you to notice what's not here. Matthew doesn't give us any details about what happened to these two demon-possessed men, does he? Look, we, don't, we, don't, we don't really know anything about them. We know they were possessed by demons. We know that the demons are cast out, but we don't see anything else about them. Have you ever like, watched a movie or read a book or a show, and, and when it concludes, there's still loose ends? Like, that's so frustrating, right? right? Like, what happened to this guy? What happened to those people? And, and that's kind of what you feel like here. Like, what about the demon-possessed men? Well, thankfully, we, we know from Mark and Luke that at least one of these men followed Jesus. They wanted to follow Jesus. They was at his feet and said, can I go with you? And Jesus said, go and tell everyone what God has done for you. And he did. So, so we know the ending, but Matthew probably knew that too. And he decided, as the author of this account, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I'm not going to include that detail. He's not just a bad storyteller. He, he's, he's intentionally not focusing there. Why? Because Matthew's telling a different story, church. The story's not actually about the men. His focus is on the demons and the people. His focus is on the spiritual forces of evil and this town that begged him to leave. That's where he wants us to consider this morning. So why did the people of this city beg Jesus to leave them? I'm just imagine this happening here in Oxford. There's, there's, there's people who are, who are in bondage to demons and they're violent and we can't, we can't go down Friendship Road anymore. <laughs> because they're going to attack us if we do. But then this guy comes and he sets them free. Why, why would we ever say, please leave? We, we, you think we'd say, please stay. Yeah, that's not what they do. Why would they want him to leave? And I think Matthew's telling us why, as he shows about the report of the herdsmen in verse 33. Again, they, they go into the city, and it says they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And church, this is one of those I think rare instances where different translations here, you'll see, translate this word especially different ways. And I think that the ESV obscures the meaning a little bit of what's going on. So the phrase in the ESV is especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And that gives the impression that the herdsman's story was really focused on what Jesus did for these two men. But just listen to how the NIV translates it. They went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Do you hear the difference there? Including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So so here's the difference. It wasn't, we met a man who has power over demons. Oh, and by the way, our pigs are gone. That's not what they said. They came back to the town and they said, our pigs are gone. There's a man who came and he cast out the demons from the two guys at the tomb and he cast them into the herd and now the herd is gone and our pigs are destroyed. They care about the pigs. And, and the town responds by going and begging Jesus to leave. See, the two men that Jesus freed were just a footnote to the herdsmen. That, that, yeah, and, and they're free now too, but our pigs are gone. And so the town comes and they beg Jesus to leave because he cost them their pigs. This would have been a significant source of economy and livelihood for this town. And suddenly it's gone. Jesus came and he majorly disrupted their status quo, didn't he? He majorly disrupted the lives they were leading. He majorly disrupted the, the security they had. He majorly disrupted just this quiet little Gentile town that had a lot of pigs. And they don't want them, they don't want them there anymore. And regardless of what happened to these two demon-possessed men, they don't want anything to do with him. They beg him to leave. 
And I think we can begin to understand a little bit better now why the demons requested to go into the pigs in the first place. The demons did this because they hate Jesus. They hate Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus. And it seems like their intention in this moment was that they wanted to stir up the town's animosity toward Jesus by making it seem like he destroyed their herd. That they didn't want to do any favors to Jesus. So they said, send us into the pigs, and then they immediately destroy the pigs, and the town gets riled up against him. But then we wonder, why did Jesus allow that? Why would Jesus permit this? Why would he let them carry out this devious plan? And, and the reason is that he was exposing the real values of the people. As one commentator says, the loss of the herd exposed that they preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. They preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. Jesus was exposing them for who they really are. So, so, so that's the story 2,000 years ago about this town in the gatherings and these men that were freed and these pigs that were destroyed and, and this town begging Jesus to leave. Now what are we supposed to learn from this for our lives today? Four realities that we need to understand this morning from this passage, church. Four realities. One, we have a spiritual enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. Why did these demons take up residence in, in these men in the first place? And why would they attack anybody who drew near? And the answer is simple, because the spiritual forces of evil are the enemies of God's image bearers. The spiritual forces of evil are the enemies of God's image bearers. And this is evident as early as the opening chapters of Genesis, when we first see Satan as a serpent tempting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had a perfect life with God in a perfect world. Why would Satan do what he did. He made and carried out a plan to destroy their perfect life with God and to bring death to God's image bearers. Why? Why does Satan care? Why do demons care? Why do, why, do, why do they bother with us? And the answer is because they hate God. They hate God and God made us in his image for his glory. And if they hate God, then they will also hate those who bear his image. Just as if someone intended to hurt you by hurting your children, for the spiritual forces of evil to assault and attack God's image bearers is for them to assault and attack the heart of God himself. We have a spiritual enemy that hates God and therefore hates us because we are created in the image of God. And again, this is, this is reality. Satan and demons are real. Satan and demons are powerful. And because Satan and demons hate God, they want to destroy you. There are more dangers in this world than material dangers. There are more dangers in this world than COVID and then politicians and natural disasters. Our enemy is not just sickness and disease. Our enemy is not just storms. Every person on this planet has an enemy in the spiritual forces of evil who are intent on our destruction. And every one of us left to ourselves could end up just like these two men at the tombs. That's, that's true. This could have been us. Because we have an enemy. Listen, this is a frightening reality. This is a frightening reality for frail, sinful, limited human beings left to ourselves in this world. But there is something in this passage that is even more frightening than this. 
And it's the second reality is that we have sided with the enemy. We have sided with the enemy. Though the story begins with the reality that these demons are intent on destroying humans, the story ends by showing us that humans are just like the demons. Human beings are just like the demons. Just look at the two responses to Jesus in this story. What do the demons do when Jesus enters their territory? They say, what have you to do with us? Why are you here? Now they have to submit to him, but they don't, they don't want him there. They hate Jesus. They want to do anything they can to get out of the presence of Jesus. And what do the people in the town do when Jesus enters their territory? They say, please leave us alone. We don't want anything to do with you. Do you see the common thread? We are not just susceptible to the spiritual forces of evil. We have actually sided with the spiritual forces of evil against the Son of God. All of us have. Just like the demons, we don't submit to his authority. We refuse to give him the worship that he alone deserves. Whatever pigs are in our own life, we prefer them to Jesus. We want him to leave us so that we can live the way we want to live. All of this is demonic behavior. This is how the demons are, and this is how we are. It's not just here that we see this. Again, think of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. They weren't, they weren't attacked. He didn't just come and, and harm them. Like, they weren't just victims. He came and he persuaded them to join him in his rebellion against the Creator. And they listened to him. They weren't just victims. They, they, they said, yeah, we're, we're going we're to follow the serpent. Or listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 44. He says to religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I mean, that is not your typical seeker-friendly sermon. This is how Jesus describes humanity, children of Satan who love to do what Satan wants them to do. It's not an overstatement. That's who we are. That's who human beings are. Listen to how Paul describes humans in Ephesians 2. Followers of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are not just victims of the spiritual forces of evil. We are followers of them. We are allies with them against the Son of God. The town and the demons are doing the same thing to Jesus in this passage. I've just been reading through, uh, just finished reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Lucy. And C.S. Lewis just does such a good job at helping us grasp the dynamic of this in the story of Edmund. Edmund and the White Witch. The character of the White Witch, of course, is the, is the false queen of Narnia. She's the enemy of Aslan, and she desires to destroy the four human children who are destined to reign over Narnia. And so what does she do when one of them comes on the scene? She doesn't attack him. She doesn't just take him captive. She offers him Turkish delight. And we don't know what Turkish delight is, but it sounds so good, Right? She tempts Edmund with Turkish delight so that he will side with her and betray his siblings. And that's exactly what Edmund does. He has his eyes set on that Turkish delight. And, and even though Lewis, Lewis shows us the inner workings of his mind, he, he actually knows that she's, she's not the good guy. But he lies to himself about it. He, he, he says, sure, you know, he, he just tells himself lies because he, he wants Turkish delight. And begins saying, and they don't deserve, I mean, 
This is not that bad what I'm doing. He justifies. He deceives himself so he can get what he wants, but he knows he's in the wrong, and we don't really feel bad for Edmund because he's not a victim. He's a traitor. He's a traitor. He chooses to side with the enemy, even though he knows it's wrong. This is what Matthew's getting at in this story, is that we are not just victims of the spiritual forces of evil. We are followers of them. We've joined their ranks in opposition to Jesus. That's what we have done as fallen image bearers. And listen, if that's true, then this is also true. We all face the same judgment that's coming to them. Listen, the demons know it. The demons know there is a day set for judgment. And same, same for us. Revelation 20, the lake of fire, is not just the destiny of Satan and demons. It's the destiny of Satan, demons, and all who followed them in their sinful rebellion against the Creator. That day is coming. There is a day of judgment set for all creatures who rebel against their Creator, whether invisible or visible. And church, I just want to make this observation from Matthew 8. Jesus has authority over sickness. But how does that passage end? It ends with Isaiah 53. He has borne our sickness and carried our diseases, pointing us to the fact that, that our sickness is rooted in our sin. Sickness is not the danger. Our sin is the danger. When the storm comes, Jesus has authority over the storms, but in the storm he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? See, the storm's not the danger. Our unbelieving hearts are the danger. Here, there's demons, there's spiritual enemies, but Jesus is showing us it's not, it's not them that's the danger. You've joined them. You're a rebel too. Your greatest need is not external deliverance. Your greatest need is internal deliverance. Your greatest need is not just, it's, it's not just deliverance and the power of Satan, but it's forgiveness of our sins against our Creator. That's what Matthew's teaching us. We have this internal need because we have sinned. We've sided with the enemy, and this leads us then to the third glorious reality that we need to understand is that Jesus came to bring both forgiveness and freedom. He came to bring both forgiveness and freedom. Think back to the demon's question. Have you come here to torment us before the time? If we're followers of the spiritual forces of evil, and we are, then that question could be our question too. Here's our creator that we have rebelled against who has come to earth. Why? Why did he come? Did he come to judge us? Did he come to give us what we deserve? No. Praise God, Jesus did not come into the world for judgment of our sins, but instead to save us from what our sins deserve. He came into the world to purchase forgiveness for our sin against him, and he did this by resisting the temptation of Satan, living a sinless and obedient life, and then dying on the cross as a sacrifice and a substitute in our place for our sins. This is the gospel. Jesus could have come in judgment, but he came in mercy. He could have come to punish us for our sins, but he came to pay the penalty for our sins. He could have come in vengeance on his enemies, but he came in love for his enemies. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. This is why he came. This is what the demons couldn't understand. He came in grace. He came in love. He came in mercy. And here's what we learn as the New Testament explains what Jesus achieved on the cross, is that by dying for our sins, Jesus defeated the spiritual forces of evil. Listen to how Colossians 2 puts it. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you're forgiven, you're alive in Christ, he died for your sins, it's nailed to the cross. And then he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You're forgiven, they're defeated. You see, Satan's entire strategy is to entice God's image bearers to reject God and rebel against him so that they can be punished for their sin. That's his, that's his strategy. Let's get them to sin so that God will punish them too. But the cross disarms the spiritual forces of evil because the punishment's been paid for. There's no accusation they can make. There's nothing that Satan or demons can do to those who are in Christ. He's disarmed them because our sins have been forgiven and with forgiveness comes freedom. It all comes in Jesus Christ alone. This morning I want to speak directly to anyone here who has not yet received Christ's forgiveness and the freedom that it brings. This morning, just like the town, you have been confronted with the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. You've been confronted with the reality that you have made yourself his enemy by living for yourself instead of him. Just like the demons, you deserve everlasting judgment for your sins. Every one of us does. But Jesus came into the world to die for our sins in our place so that everyone who repents and trusts in him will be forgiven and have eternal life. And that means you can do one of two things this morning. You can either beg Jesus to leave or you can follow him. That's your choice. You can beg him to leave. You can say, I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus, because I want to live my life and I want to continue rebellion. You continue following the spiritual forces of evil, or you can repent of your sins, receive the free gift of salvation, and trust in Jesus. And I speak for the whole church this morning that we would urge you and pray that you would call out to Jesus this morning for salvation, if that is you. Finally, church, fourth reality from this passage, Jesus calls all who follow him into enemy territory. Jesus calls all who follow him into enemy territory. There's a group of people in this story that we haven't talked about yet. The disciples. Now, they're not named in these verses, but we know they're there. Right? They're the ones who got in the boat with Jesus on the other side. They're the ones whose minds are still spinning because they just saw Jesus rebuke a storm and make it calm. They were fishermen, and Jesus had called them and said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And that's what he's doing right here in this passage. He's making them fishers of men. And he's doing that in us as well, church. I hope you can sense that, and that's been true of you, that as we've gone through Matthew, Jesus is he's making us fishers of men. He's teaching us how to do that. He's equipping us to do that. And here's the lesson for those who are in his school this morning. Here's what we need to take to heart is that we are following Jesus into enemy territory whenever we take the gospel forward. When we talk about taking the gospel to the nations, we talk about taking the gospel to the spiritually dead, to the, to the lost, we need to realize that we are talking about taking the gospel into demonic territory. The spiritual forces of evil are in opposition to anyone who seeks to advance the gospel. That's, that, that's what's going on. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual war that we are waging. 
And yet, church, let's remember this. The one we proclaim is with us and has complete authority over the enemy. He commands them with a word. One word in this passage. Go. That's the one that's with us. That's the one we proclaim. They know who he is. They know who he is. They tremble before him. And though no one dared to go near the demon-possessed man at the tombs, we have to go to those places. We can't be like people in that town that stay away for fear. No, we go to those places because Jesus is with us. And we proclaim Christ. And we see him do for others what he did for these two men. We see him set them free. If we are truly following him, then let's follow him there to the places of spiritual darkness, to the places of spiritual deadness, to the places where Satan and demons have sway. And let's watch Jesus, as we proclaim him, bring forgiveness and freedom to more and more people.